Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. So you've decided it's time to overhaul your portfolio, out with the old assets and in with the new. But hold on, before you press the sell button, there's a lot to consider. Have you modelled your new portfolio? Have you found the cheapest funds? Have you thought about taxes? I want to know how to plan a big portfolio move and stick with it when things get tough. And in today's dumb question of the week, does it matter if I choose an ETF or an index fund? Okay, let's get into it. Making a major move in your portfolio is a little bit like moving house. It can be stressful, it can be expensive, and you probably don't want to do it too many times in your life. Yeah, it's never pleasant because, you know, there's a lot to do and it's just boring housekeeping stuff. So at best, it's painless. At worst, it's excruciating. So maybe let's start with what are some of the reasons why we might choose to completely overhaul our portfolios? So here I draw on a lot of experience speaking to people about their investments. And probably the most common example is someone who has made an investment journey themselves in terms of their learning. So perhaps they started off by thinking that in order to invest, you have to buy lots of stocks because that's what people usually think of. So they buy a stock magazine, they do their research, and what they end up with is this kind of accretion disk of junky stocks which they've been tipped about or which have been written about. And it's just kind of accreted into this formless mass, which is unwieldy, complex. They don't really understand it. They can't track it. And they have to somehow deal with it. I love the idea of a share magazine giving you tips. It's so 1980s. <laughs> We're going to go on Wall Street Bets and find the tips these days, Robin. But they do that. You know, if you read any of the shares magazines, what are they going to say? Well, are they going to say buy an index fund and stick with it? No. You know, they have to write about something. I feel their pain, Roman. I feel their pain. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a lot to talk about. I mean, I think you're right, though, that the reason that comes up again and again is that you're constantly learning, aren't you, about investment? So many times I've read something or looked at some like whizzy maths or even an academic paper and thought, oh, my God, why have I been doing what I've been doing for the last five years? I didn't even need that other asset or maybe my weights were completely wrong. And that itself comes with a kind of red flag. If you feel that kind of road to Damascus moment where suddenly you have a complete change of mindset and you want to completely change everything overnight, it's usually best to have a cooling off period before you do that. Yeah, I always say no sudden moves when it comes to your life savings. Absolutely. And this isn't the kind of thing you should do in isolation because it's going to affect your family members. So certainly discuss it with your partner because that usually provides a little bit of moderation of your activity just to make sure that you're not doing something crazy. And if they go wide-eyed and start screaming at you, you know there's a problem. Or I've just said it in a very sort of patronising way. <laughs> yeah, that would also have the same effect as I've discovered as well. <laughs> Didn't you get in trouble because Laura asked you a question you said, oh, just go and watch this video I made. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was half joking, that one, anyway. But I guess the other reason why you might be changing up your portfolio is that your goals have changed or you're at a different life stage. And that's kind of a, a normal and a good reason, I guess, to change. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's bad news. You know, you may find out that you've got a serious illness and your investment horizon's changed. And now you have to think about essentially legacy and handing over the portfolio. Or perhaps you got divorced and suddenly you've got a lot less to play with. Or perhaps you've had children. You're just going through your life history here, aren't you? <laughs> 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 not in the right order though you know all of these would affect your allocation 
or just your risk tolerance has changed because you're older or maybe you're in a new relationship and your partner has a lower or maybe even a higher risk tolerance than you and that portfolio in a long-term relationship is always going to be something of a compromise. Yeah, I think the solution most people come up with usually is you do yours and I'll do mine. It's kind of like That's a bad solution though in my view, but anyway. <laughs> but if you can't agree, I mean that's usually what people come up with. I mean that's a whole episode on its own, I think. Another one is that you inherit a portfolio. So I speak to a lot of people who receive a portfolio from their parents after they pass away, and it's not what they want. It's not their portfolio. And you have to kind of stamp your own beliefs and personality onto that portfolio. And that's a tricky process because, in a way, it kind of reflects your parents' character. So it can be difficult to do that. So it's an interesting problem. So yeah, there are a lot of different reasons why we might make a major portfolio change. But then before we even come on to think, okay, what's this new portfolio I'm aiming for? I think it's so important to be clear about what your current portfolio actually is, because it might be split across many different accounts, pensions, ISAs, general investment accounts. It might be some in your partner's name, some in your name. Like there's a lot to consider here about, you know, what do I actually own to begin with? And sometimes people exclude buy-to-let property from their portfolio, even though that's very much part of it and certainly affects the risk profile of your investments overall. So it's important to have that overall view, also to have an overall view of what your goals are, because you can't really invest without goals. You've got to have a fairly clear idea of where you're headed and what you want to achieve. But once you've got that, you can work back to a portfolio that kind of fits. So I think ultimately, when you're looking at your current portfolio, you just want to end up with a basic list, don't you? These are the platforms I'm using where I'm holding these different assets and they're costing me this much in ongoing charges. That's the key one as well. (laughs) So I think that's one of the reasons why people rationalise as well. They don't realise how much they're paying in fees. And when I discuss this with them, if they haven't heard of it, I always sit down with them with a T-Rex calculator, which tells you what percentage of the gains you're going to keep. So let's say that returns for equity are 6%. If you're paying 2% in fees, then you're paying away a third of your gains, which amounts to a huge value over a long period of time. If a fund has a fee of more than 0.2%, you should really think twice about using it. That's my belief. And 1% is just crazy nowadays. You know, I think a fund has to be very, very special to demand that kind of fee. So I think that's another reason why people simplify. Once they realise that the fees matter, they see the portfolio in a completely new light. So now we understand our current portfolio, and maybe we have an idea of the portfolio we want to move into, our target allocation. But before we sort of implement it, how do you sense check what you're about to buy? So before you make the leap into a new portfolio, how do you kind of try it out? Well, the only way to do that is to look at the historic returns. So let's say you want, let's start off really simple, a 60-40 equity bond portfolio. There are some choices you have to make, you know, what global equity fund do you buy? What global bond fund do you buy? Or do you buy an off-the-shelf single fund portfolio? And then look at the historic returns of that portfolio, its drawdowns, and see whether you can stomach that risk. Just see how bad it's been in the past. And also look at its long-term return if you can. Ideally, go for funds which have a lot of history, where either they or their index goes back decades, because that gives you a much better idea of what the returns will be. So either the index which they track or a very similar index. So I know there are some really good online tools you can use to model portfolios. One that I've messed around with quite a lot is PortfolioCharts.com. Have you used this one? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've made videos about it and I've sung its praises online. I just think it's fantastic. 
I mean, what's good about it is you can do it from the perspective of an investor in the UK or in the US or in Australia. Like most are so US focused that you always have to think, does this really apply to me? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They talk about Vanguard Wellington funds and you just think, well, we don't have anything like that. So, you know, (laughs) what does that mean to me? But it's great because it does that. It does have a lot of history. I'm sometimes a bit dubious as to where it gets the long-term returns from, particularly for some of the asset types. But it does a fairly good job at cobbling together history back to 1970. So you've got about 50 years of history to play with. And that spans many crises, high inflation periods, periods when interest rates were falling as well as rising. That's important. And it's got a fairly small group of assets inside it. But once you decide on a portfolio and set it up, It goes back through time and it works out huge numbers of statistics for that portfolio. What's the biggest fall from the previous all-time high? How long did that fall last? And that's something called the ulcer index. And if you're investing for retirement, what's a sustainable rate at which you can withdraw money from that portfolio without exhausting the pot for a certain period of time? Yeah, and I like that it does it on a kind of worst case basis. So it says, you know, if you got the worst period of returns you could imagine with this portfolio, would you run out of money? Because that's what you kind of care about, isn't it? It's not always just the average. So let's say you do it for a 20-year retirement. It's the worst 20-year period for any period going back to 1970. So it's purely historic. In that sense, it's really useful because it's observed losses. And it's not using any fancy maths. It's just saying, this is what happened. So in effect, you can throw different scenarios at it. You can kind of say, my portfolio is going to be 50% global equity, 10% long-term bonds, 10% short-term bonds, 5% gold, 5% commodities. Like You can build this little portfolio and test it. And it's also got a lot of different off-the-shelf portfolios that are recommended by different famous investors. And it's really fun to play around with and really informative. So I would say before you move in to any new portfolio, have a look at a tool like this. And there are others out there. That's just one that I've used in the past, which I think is very good. And I think the key thing that's sort of implicit with what we've just said is that we're thinking of the return and the volatility and the correlation of the portfolio as a whole, rather than just the individual assets in isolation. Because I think the traditional way of constructing a portfolio would be trying to find different assets where you expect the returns to be good long term and just putting them all in a big pile. But then what you don't think about with that approach is the correlation. So a crash comes and it knocks all of them. The kind of Modern portfolio theory approach is you're trying to find assets which are negatively correlated. So your portfolio does well, potentially, whatever the economic conditions. Which is difficult to do because if you look at some portfolios working fairly well in all macroeconomic situations, things like the permanent portfolio, you end up investing quite a lot of money in things which seem like complete losers. So you might put quite a bit in cash or short term government bonds, which have feeble returns, really awful returns. But during those very severe crashes in the equity market, you'll be really glad that you did put money into something which doesn't crash. So let's imagine you're going to be cooking with your toddler. It's kind of like that, where, you know, if you ask your toddler to make up a recipe, they'll just put everything they like into a pot. You know, it'll be chocolate, marshmallows, Rice Krispies, crisps. (laughs) So what you'll end up with is an unholy mixture of things which individually taste good, but don't necessarily work well together. And humans are particularly bad at working out complex relationships where, as you add more and more things, the number of interactions between them becomes explosively large. So let's say you've got 10 assets in your portfolio. You have to consider 45 different correlations for that portfolio. 
And it's rapidly getting to the point where no human can do that mentally. Roman, you can do it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we need things like a Scooby-Doo tree, because you need to bring that high dimensional problem to a low dimensional problem that you can visualize. Or you use one of the off-the-shelf portfolios. But I think it also stresses the importance of simplicity. People assume that I've got a really complex portfolio. So when I show them my portfolio and my core, they seem pretty shocked. <laughs> it's just like two funds. I think simplicity is underestimated in investment. Yeah, I like your recipe analogy because it is like trying to construct a balanced meal in a way. You can't have chips and mashed potato on your same plate. That is not diversified. <laughs> you need to build a diversified meal like you. You need your nuggets, you need your fries, you need your ketchup, don't you, Roman? Oh yeah, I discovered recently a hamburger pizza, which on the face of it sounds disgusting, <laughs> but in fact, it's really nice. That's a disgusting portfolio analogy. So let's say we're now in the situation where we've done all the modeling, we've done all the nerding out and looking at all the stats and their history. We've chosen the portfolio that we think is right for us. Now the question comes to implementing it, doesn't it? And you've actually got to find the specific funds to align with each component. So it's all well and good saying, oh, we want some long-term government bonds, but which fund? I think one of the guides here is fees. That certainly restricts your choices a lot if you've got a problem with too much choice. If you've got a problem with too little choice, which is the case in many situations where, let's say you've got a workplace pension, and you can only choose from a very limited set of funds. The questions to ask are, what are the fees? What's in the fund? Does it give me the exposure I want? And how is it managed? So if it is actively managed, just make sure that you're kind of happy with the managers who are at the reins and that you trust them. And sometimes you kind of just have to compromise a little bit, don't you, and do the best you can. So if you're in one of those pensions where you're choosing between, you know, just sort of seven or eight different funds, and you're thinking, oh, I wanted a small cap value fund. <laughs> but maybe you can't find, well, you definitely won't be able to find that in there. So maybe you just have to compromise and go for some kind of equity fund, which is as best correlated as you can. Or you buy that small cap value fund outside your pension. And in your pension, you just focus on the bonds or the global equity, whatever it might be. Yeah. So you'll have to do that kind of mapping process where you find a fund which is as closely related in terms of historical returns to the thing you want. Now, for example, if you look at portfolio charts, it stresses how important small cap value is, how it's actually performed very well historically. But in the UK, we've literally got, I think, just one reasonably priced small cap value fund, which is available. And not every platform has that. That's right. And we're definitely not recommending that fund, are we? It's no. just <laughs> if you wanted small cap value. Yeah, historically, it's just had great returns and it's beaten the overall market. But that doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in future. But if you did want that one, on Vanguard's platform in the UK, you can't have it. On Vanguard's platform in the US, you can. Not that I'm bitter. Yeah, US investors are so spoiled, aren't they? They can just choose whatever they want with the lowest fees. That's right. We're cobbling together our portfolio from just odds and ends that are left over. <laughs> it's awful. I mean, it's worse, actually, in Europe. I think Europe is even worse in terms of choice. I mean, the other thing you can do before you actually push the button and buy everything, is you can build like a sample portfolio of the things you're going to buy in various different tools. So I know Google Finance has one, I think Yahoo has one, where you can plug in the tickers, put it together, and maybe just watch how it moves for a month or two, just so you get used to the kind of normal daily volatility and you're not scared when you actually buy it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, make a paper portfolio and just see if you're happy with it. But what's most important, I think, is those long-term returns. 
Oh yeah, for sure. It's just some people might go into their portfolio and then get scared right on day one when it's down 3%. So, well, maybe you should have <laughs> seen that that's not unusual. But you can almost guarantee, you know, the minute you buy the portfolio, it's going to fall in value because the thing is you'll be checking it regularly when it's first created and you'll be super sensitive to losses. So you will see a loss early on and it will be very painful and you'll be questioning your decision. So just be prepared for that because it's almost guaranteed to happen. Yeah, certainly when I've done it, rarely do you buy something and then, wow, I bought it at the perfect time. It just keeps going up and up. <laughs> never happens, does it? It's funny, Laura and I were watching a Netflix documentary last night about GameStop, where that's exactly what happened, of course. You know, GameStop just surged and surged and surged. And every time it reached new highs, people thought, can't go any higher. But it did, until it didn't, of course. In a way, it's a kind of red flag if that does happen. But that stress is another thing, which is that you've got to be willing to live with a portfolio and stick with it and be prepared to do that even when it seems to be losing. Because the whole reason for choosing the portfolio was that it won't win in every single environment. You know, there will be periods when some of the assets underperform, but hopefully there'll always be one asset which does okay. I think that's particularly true when people are making bets on factor funds, isn't it? Because, yeah, the data shows that they probably do outperform over the long term, but they have long periods of underperformance if you're betting on momentum stocks or value stocks, growth stocks, whatever it might be. Or even things like quality, you know, where you think it makes absolute sense that you buy companies which have strong balance sheets. Intuitively, you might think, oh, that'll always do well. But in fact, it's underperformed for quite a long period of time. I think it's a fact of investing that nothing can do well all the time, isn't it? Because if it did, everyone would go into that asset and it would become a bubble and then it would pop so, and then it wouldn't do well. right? So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that it cannot do well all the time. So this happens quite often. People send me a reference to a portfolio and I check it out. And it's kind of like a perpetual motion machine where people say, oh, look, this is a perpetual motion machine and it's really cool. I've solved the energy problem. But eventually you find the flaw in the argument. And it's the same with these portfolios. There'll always be some environment in which they don't do well. Okay, so now the time has come to actually sell the stuff we don't want and buy the new stuff that we do want. What are we thinking at the final stage before we press the button? I think taxes play a part here. And in the UK, we're very blessed to have ISAs, individual savings accounts, and also self-invested personal pensions, SIPs because those are tax shelters and you can trade as much as you want in those and it doesn't have a tax implication. So there you don't have to worry about capital gains tax or income tax. As long as you don't sell, if you're outside one of those accounts, if it's not tax sheltered, there's no problem usually. But in some countries I've heard that is a problem. So for example, if you're based in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, every so often you have to sell your portfolio and realise the gains. Well, you don't actually have to sell it, I think. It's just that it assumes that it's like a paper sale and charges you capital gains tax on it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a paper sale and, and you have to pay capital gains. I mean, we don't get into politics here very often. We try not to, but that's a terrible law. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and yet, if you're a property investor, you know, the taxes are very favourable. Why is that? But capital gains is the thing, isn't it? We're thinking about when we're transitioning from one portfolio to another. But in the UK, yeah, you're right. But you have to be pretty damn wealthy to have exceeded all your ISA allowances and your pension allowances and all of this and pay capital gains. But, you know, not everyone here is listening from the UK. 
And I'd like to think we have a lot of really rich listeners. So <laughs> let's pretend we have a lot of money outside tax shelters. What are we thinking about in minimising capital gains taxes? Well, here, effectively, you're thinking about avoiding sales. So, for example, if you're going to be receiving new money, what you could do is just accumulate new funds in the desired portfolio. Such that over time, what will happen is that your old portfolio becomes much smaller as a percentage of your assets. So that's one way to avoid sales. Yeah. It depends if there's like overlap between the portfolio you're moving from and the one you're moving to. So if you can find some building blocks that are the same, like maybe you've got a global equity fund and that's going to remain, but the weighting is going to change, then yeah, you can just sort of hold that and buy the other stuff with your new money. And then over time, your portfolio will morph beautifully without taxes into your new (laughs) design. And then there are all sorts of rules around taxes. So tax loss harvesting, for example, you might sell the stuff which is made a loss. And in some countries, the UK, for example, you can write off those losses against future taxes. Yeah, that's the key what you say there, future taxes. So a capital loss can be offset against capital gains of the same tax year and future tax years. But you can't sort of carry it back and say, oh, but I made a gain two years ago. Can't I offset my loss now? No, that's why it's important to plan these things. But that's why I think a tax accountant is absolutely priceless, a good one. Because there's lots of things which they can do to make a portfolio move efficient. So in the UK, for example, you have capital gains tax allowances, which was around £12,000 a year. It's going to start going down. So if you're moving portfolios with tax implications, maybe is a good time to start. But the general idea is after you can net off some of your losses, each year you want to sort of use your capital gains tax allowance because it doesn't roll, like the allowance doesn't roll. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other one which people often use is called bed and breakfasting. I'll let you explain that one, Michael. I'm really not a tax guy. (laughs) Well, I'm not a tax guy either. But my understanding of what bed and breakfasting is is that it was a strategy people would employ to make use of their annual capital gains tax allowance. So what you could do on the last day of the tax year is sell your fund to realise a capital gain and then buy it again the next morning. And by doing that, you've diffused a bit of your future capital gains tax liability by resetting your cost base. But the authorities quickly got onto this wheeze. And in 1998, they implemented the so-called 30-day rule, which means that if you sell an asset and then buy it again within a 30-day period in the UK, it's as if you had never sold it from a tax perspective. What people sometimes do now is bed hopping, where you sell the asset and then buy a similar but different asset to kind of get around the rules. And boy, is none of this financial advice. (laughs) But yeah, bed and breakfasting is basically the idea of temporarily disposing of an asset for the purpose of minimising capital gains over the long term. And that's called bed and breakfasting. Bizarre. (laughs) I mean, there are lots of other things that a good tax advisor will talk to you about. So if you're married... Transfers of assets between spouses in the UK usually are exempt from capital gains. So let's say my wife was about to sell an asset and generate a big gain, but I'm about to sell an asset and generate a big loss. Well, it makes sense for me to transfer that asset to her potentially and she sell it (laughs) and then they can be offset against each other. So there's all these kind of like really niche things that you don't have to think about very often in your life. But yeah, professional advice is the key here. If you're in that situation where you've got a lot of money outside of tax shelters. But I think we should also say there's nothing wrong with paying tax, right? Tax keeps the society going and sometimes you're going to have to pay tax, right? That's just a life as an investor where you've made gains and we want to make gains. Yeah, I think tax avoidance is bad, but paying tax unnecessarily, that's not going to help anyone, I don't think. 
So yeah, taxes is definitely one big consideration when it comes to moving portfolios. Because I think the instinct is we've done all this work, we've analyzed everything, we've finally come up with what we think is the perfect allocation. And the instinct is just sell all the old stuff, buy all the new stuff straight away. But maybe resist and think about the strategic way to do it. Within an ISA or a SIP, you can actually do that. And you don't have yeah. to worry about the implications. And the other consideration might be trading costs. So if your platform is expensive in terms of trading costs, then maybe you don't want to do a wholesale switch. And the other thing people, I think, often ask is, is it a good time to switch portfolio now? Maybe this portfolio I've come up with, I want to hold long term, but a few components in it are looking bubbly. Or equity is looking expensive right now. Well, that's another thing that people tell me. Or they say, look, I've made a 90% loss on this stock. Should I wait for it to recover a little bit before I sell it? and switch into something else. And the thing to understand is that if you're switching from equity to equity, that's not necessarily problematic. What's bad is if you sell equity and stay in cash, because then once equity markets do rebound, all of the boats kind of rise together, but the cash doesn't. So that's the really bad behaviour that you want to avoid. But switching from one equity to another isn't so bad. Because the thing you can't control is historic returns. What you can control is returns in future. And if you're convinced that you're going to be better off with this new investment, then that's the portfolio you're happy with and that's the one you should aim for. Yeah, I think it's an anchoring bias, a cognitive bias to be obsessed with the price you actually bought the asset for and anchor on that. Like the market doesn't really remember, so you probably shouldn't either. And it's what happens in future that matters. And the other thing people are thinking about is this idea of drip feeding or dollar cost averaging, pound cost averaging, whatever you might want to call it, where let's say you're moving from a bond heavy portfolio to an equity heavy portfolio. Sound familiar, Roman? Might do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you just do that all at once or do you do it little by little over the course of months or years? And really, this is about psychology. I mean, it was for me because, you know, I had a bond heavy portfolio and I made it equity heavy. It's going to be 100% equity very soon. And for me, that was a very difficult decision. So for me, it was a case of drip feeding because I thought markets were probably headed down. And as it turned out, I was right. But, you know, I could have easily been wrong. I think you have to consider your own psychology and whatever is going to work for you is the path you should follow. The thing I've never really understood about this idea of drip feeding is how do you decide how long to drip feed over? Like it could just be anywhere from 100 years to a month, right? I don't understand how you set the parameters here. Well, for me, it was, you know, how long do I think the problematic period is going to last? And I thought it would probably be about two years. But that's how people usually decide. They say, look, how long is this crisis period going to last? And I'll average over that period. Because what you're kind of hoping for, if you start drip feeding, is that you're right and the market crashes somewhere in the middle of your drip feed. And that's the situation where you'd be better off. Well, ideally, it should happen immediately. Oh, yeah. Ideally, it happens just before you pull the trigger. <laughs> What's interesting when you talk about drip feeding is that people often do it, don't they, when they're going into the equity market. So they put in a little bit each month rather than just putting the lump sum in straight away. But the other way around, when they're taking risk off the table, they tend to do it all in one go, don't they? They don't tend to drip feed out. When weirdly, the maths would be better the drip feeding out way that way around. Because the longer you, you're in equity, usually the better the returns will be. But I guess it's to do with volatility, isn't it? Like if you're moving from a volatile asset to non-volatile for some reason, basically you don't want to take risk anymore, then you want to do it straight away. I guess the longer you're in the volatility, the more risk you're keeping for longer. Yeah, the risk of a drawdown is fairly high over a short period of time. Okay, so whatever strategy we use, 
Over time, we eventually get to our desired allocation. Our portfolio has been built. Now what do we have to do? Well, we have to stick with it. Now comes the boring part. <laughs> Which is doing nothing. And I think that's so hard for many people, for me as well, to do nothing and just leave it. And, you know, news will come along. Your friends will tell you what they're investing in. And for me, it's difficult because I'm kind of immersed in financial news and other people's portfolios. So I'm always seeing the shiny new balls waft past my eyes. And you're thinking, <laughs> oh, that looks interesting. And, you know, you think, oh, I, I wish I'd have invested in that. But you have to kind of resist the siren song of novelty. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? You've gone through all this effort and all this planning and all this designing to get to the stage where you've got a portfolio with you're happy with. It's be crazy to get cold feet immediately. We started this whole thing off by saying how painful this process can be, a major redesign of a portfolio. You don't want to do it that often. Blowing off steam in a fun portfolio is really helpful here. You know, if you're going to play around, do it with a small amount of your capital and have fun with it. But don't do that with the core. And I think that's certainly helped me. Yeah, maybe once a year is the way to go in terms of reviewing your core allocation. And, you know, why not do it as a New Year's resolution? And usually that's when people look at it. It's the beginning of the year or maybe the end of the tax year. So when you get your ISA allowance, the new one, just before, that's when everyone piles into their ISAs. That's when all the marketing emails from ISA providers come. Have you used your allowance this year? (laughs) (laughs) I have. I used it on the 7th of April like a nerd. (laughs) If you do want to model the long-term returns of your portfolio, we have tools to do that in PensionCraft. So if you join our membership, you'll have access to those. To learn more, just go to pensioncraft.com. Right. Today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Alex, who asks, does it matter if I choose an ETF or an index fund? So, Roman, let's just say quickly, what is an ETF and what do we mean by index fund? An ETF is an exchange traded fund. An index fund is one which is not exchange traded. What's the difference? Well, an exchange traded fund is wrapped as if it were a stock. You still own a portfolio of stuff in either wrapper And what drives the return of that fund will be what's in the wrapper. That's the key thing to understand. But there are certain differences. Yeah, so that's an ETF. And then an index fund is kind of a weird term. It's not actually a legal structure. What I think people mean is a mutual fund or in the UK, maybe an open-ended investment company. Is that right? Yeah, an OIC, as we call them. (laughs) There's so many different kinds of like mutual funds, basically. But if it doesn't say ETF in the name of the fund, chances are it's an OEIC. So what are some of the differences then to be aware of? I think the key one is if you're someone who day trades these funds, which of course I'm not, then you can only do that with an exchange traded fund. And this is why Jack Bogle hated them with a passion. He said, you know, I'm trying to make people long-term investors. So why would I ever want them to be able to buy the fund at 10 in the morning and sell it at one minute past 10. But the other difference, of course, is that if it does trade intraday, you know exactly what an ETF is worth minute to minute, whereas with an OEIC, you'll only get an end of day price. But do you really need to know the intraday price? Probably not. And you can only buy it once a day, right? Or sell it once a day. That's right. And you don't even kind of know the price you're actually going to get, do you? (laughs) No, you just have to kind of hope that it's close to where it was yesterday. Whereas with an ETF, you can literally trade at a known price. But if you're going to be holding it for 10 years, then does that 1%, 2%, 3% difference make a huge impact? Probably not. The minimum investment can also be different. So with an ETF, you just buy one share. 
So the minimum investment is driven by the price of the share. Whereas for an index fund, usually they come in chunks of, say, £25 or maybe £100. And the other difference as an investor, really, is that the fees that your broker charges may differ for ETFs versus index funds. Some will charge a premium for executing trades on ETFs. I know Vanguard does that, for example, in the UK. Well, Vanguard's kind of funny. I didn't work this out when I first had my account. If you trade on the known price, that's the one that incurs a fee. So they give you a price and then you have to trade within 10 seconds. But if you just say, buy it whenever, what they do is they aggregate the trades and you don't pay for that. So that's a free trade. One other big difference, if you look at a fund comparison platform like comparefundplatforms.com, which is very good, you'll see that they ask you, how much money do you have in stocks, which includes ETFs and investment trusts, and how much do you have in funds, i.e. non-ETFs? And that would include OICs and unit trusts, for example, because some platforms charge you differently to just hold it on their platform. So Hargreaves Lansdowne, for example, which is one of the more expensive platforms, isn't that expensive if you just stick to ETFs, whereas if you buy funds, it's more expensive on that platform. Yeah, I think that's right. Each platform, weirdly, has its own specific fee structure and some, yeah, are preferential for ETFs, some are preferable for these traditional mutual funds. And also it kind of depends on how much you're investing. Some flat fee brokers are good when you've got a lot of money. Some percentage fee brokers are good when you've got not much money invested. And in terms of the actual fees of the funds themselves, they tend to be pretty similar for the ETF version and the index fund version of the same thing. Some fund providers actually have both wrappers. So for example, Vanguard has a FTSE 100 fund, which is wrapped both as an index fund or a mutual fund or an OIC and also as an ETF. And the fees are slightly different. I think it's 0.02% difference between the two. But from the point of view of the fund manager, the daily operations, I think it makes hardly any difference. How it works behind the scenes is really different. But for us as an investor, don't really care about all that behind the scenes stuff as long as it works. Particularly if you're a long-term investor. There the differences are kind of irrelevant. So when people ask me the question, do you care which it is? I always say no, because for me, it's kind of irrelevant. I just look for the lowest fee fund, which gives me the exposure I want. I mean, if you really get into the weeds of some of this stuff, there are some nuances that nerds care about, right, Roman? Yeah, I mean, things like share classes. So with index funds, with OEICs, what you'll often get is a slew of different share classes. So you get a P share class, a C share class. What are they? What share classes? So, for example, in the old days, when you used to sell a fund, you'd have a preferential share class. So let's say you and I were creating a fund. We'd have a special share class for marketing the fund, such that if a financial advisor sold it, it would have a different fee. You know, they could offer a discounted fee for their platform. And you still see that. On some platforms, they say, look, if you buy this fund on our platform, we'll give you a lower fee. But I hate that because it makes the fund tied to the platform. And it makes it harder to switch away from the platform. So what I love about ETFs is there's one fee for everybody and it should ideally be as low as possible. Yeah, I guess in summary, I've never obsessed too much about the difference between ETFs and index funds and OICs and all this. What I think really matters is what's inside that counts. It's a Christmas message for you there, Roman. Yeah, it's like a Christmas present. You don't care about the wrapping, you care about the present that's inside. Well, tell that to my daughter, because every time I give her a present, she just plays with the box for hours on end. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. 
do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.